In a world where groups have the same kind of latent distribution of skills, they should end up in the same types of occupations on average. We just don't see that. It's obviously a social justice issue. It's obviously a civil rights I- issue. But what we're saying is that it's also a, a hugely important economic issue. In 1960, 94% of all doctors and lawyers in the United States were white men. But over time, barriers against women and people of color in these and other professions have fallen substantially. On this episode of The Pie, we're going to look at how these falling barriers have benefited the economy. And still, the barriers have a long way to fall. This is one measure of the cost of discrimination. This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie. How it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about what happens when discrimination hinders the allocation of talent, keeping women and black men from the careers they would be best at. I'm Tess Viglund. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. What happens when you prevent people from entering the careers where they would reach their maximum potential? I talked to Eric Hurst, a distinguished service professor of economics at the Booth School of Business and deputy director of BFI, and Chang Taixie, professor of economics at the Booth School of Business. So I, I thought that we could start with just a little bit of the lay of the land. Um, in 1960, the vast majority of workers in high pay professions, doctors and lawyers and so on, were white men. And if you move into the present, well, that share has dropped pretty sharply as more women and people of color have joined these professions. And, and that has had a really big economic impact. So if you could just take turns at telling us the story of these last 60 years in changing discrimination and how that's that's impacted the economy. Cheng, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So I, I thought that it, it might be useful to just tell stories of two people. So in the paper, we, we start off with the story of Sandra Day O'Connor, who we know eventually reached the Supreme Court of the U.S. What people may not be aware of is her history. So she went to Stanford Law School, graduated in 1952. I think she was number three in her class, and, and I believe that she was right behind number two in, in the class was William Rehnquist. So it was a pretty good class. But she had the misfortune to come out of law school in 1952 or 1953 at a time when it was virtually impossible for females to get a job as an attorney. So she looked and looked and she couldn't find anything. And and so for the first 10 years of her life, she worked for the U.S. Army in Germany. And she basically was an administrator in charge of allocating supplies. That's what, you know, the, that legal talent did for the first 10 years. Then, you know, in the early 1960s, she moved back to the U.S., moved to Arizona. And basically, she was fortunate that she came back to the U.S. and she was still youngish at a time when the U.S. was beginning to change. 
And so they started to be more opportunities for her. And we all know what happened, right? But what I want you to, to think about or, uh, is not just what happened to Sandra Day O'Connor, but think about all of the other great lawyers that because they knew what was going to happen to them, they basically chose not to become lawyers. And then the world changed for female lawyers over the next few decades. So at least in that respect, we are now seeing a much better allocation of talent. The other story, which I just recently found out about, is you may have seen the news about the shortage of uh, semiconductors and about how this one Taiwanese company now has a 70% share of of the world's uh, market in semiconductors. So this is a company called Taiwan Semiconductor. It was founded in 1988 by this guy called Morris Zhang. Morris Zhang uh, came from China, so he fled China in 1949 when the communists took over, went to MIT uh, as an undergraduate, and, and then got a job at the Texas Instruments. So he stayed there for 30 years, but he said that basically there was a very you know, clear glass ceiling for the way that he would put it, for Asians like him. There was no way that he would be able to move up into senior management at the Texas Instruments. So in the mid-1980s, he started to look around. He started to look around that, you know, I don't, I, that, that is given my race, I, I don't have a chance at the Texas Instruments. So he decided to move to Taiwan and he started Taiwan Semiconductor. And the, the company that he was in is no longer in the semiconductor uh, business. And the company that he created is now the dominant company in the world in, in this business. And so that's an example of also a misallocation of talent. But in that case, it wasn't solved for him. It wasn't solved for him so that he just went somewhere else where, you know, he would have the kind of opportunities that he would not have in the U.S. So, so that, that's another example of the cost of 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 not respecting your talent. So the basic premise is that all of us are good at something, okay? And some of us are going to be better reporters like you. Some are going to be better economists. Some of us are going to be better doctors. Some of us are going to be better construction workers. And so with some, you know, God-given gifts and a little bit of investments of schooling throughout our lives, we have skills that are going to make us good at something and less good at other things. And so in a world where groups have the same kind of latent distribution of skills, they should end up in the same types of occupations on average. We just don't okay. see that. And so in a world where there's things like discrimination or social norms or other types of barriers, groups get put in the wrong types of jobs or prevented from going to the jobs where they would actually kind of maximize their return, maximize what they would be good at. And so our goal is to try to uncover what those kind of barriers are in the broad and then figure it out how it affects productivity. Mm-hmm. And so the key is that differences in the jobs people sort into kind of tell us something about social norms or barriers or other types of race-specific or gender-specific differences that are preventing people from going into the occupations where they have their highest return. And so that's what we do in the first you know, kind of ingredient into our procedure 
is just measuring the differential sorting between groups into occupations over time. So, so let me just try to get my head around that. So say if you're thinking, okay, today, you know, 40% of doctors or lawyers are women and people of color, but, you know, 60 years ago, only 5% were women or people of color, there must have been some barriers that accounted for this 35% gap because, you know, obviously women and people of color have the inherent talents to have this much higher share. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the changes tell us a lot. So we could basically say whatever talent different groups had in 1960, they have today. And all what we notice is something dramatically changed from 1960 to today in the extent to which people are sorting to occupations. And that leads us to, again, this top line question is, I mean, your finding is that the impact of this is non-trivial at the scale of the economy. You measure the cost of this discrimination, keeping women and, and, and black men out of certain occupations. So can you kind of kind of like tell me, you know, what it adds up to? So we, we find that, you know, between somewhere, you know, depending upon kind of what we do in the model, between one quarter and 40 percent of all productivity growth in the United States from 1960 to, you know, the 2015, 2018 period was due to declining barriers for black men, black women, and white women relative to white men during this time period. Wow. In the paper, you try to, to differentiate the gains from the declining discrimination uh, by gender uh, versus by race. So c- can, you, c- can, can you tell us about that, about wh- wh- where do you find the bigger effect? I'll say one thing quick, you know, why only black, white, men, women? Why not you know, Hispanic or Asian or other types of groups. And the answer is, I think all of that could be done. It just so happens that when we started our analysis in 1960, the data was mostly black, white men and women. That's changed over time in the United States. And so people could, you know, use our same framework to look at this for other groups as well. So there's nothing particular about the groups we chose, except a data limitation that in 1960, when we started our analysis, that was the main four groups in the U.S. economy. That has changed today. So in our metric, the biggest discrimination was faced by black women. In terms of aggregate effects, small from the discrimination for black women just because black women are a smaller share than white women, even though they faced more discrimination through our metrics, Mm -hmm. more barriers. They're just a smaller total number. So the aggregate effect of that was a little bit smaller. So we could then measure group by group and then try to aggregate that up. And so, you know, to answer your question, the group that had the biggest effect on aggregate productivity grain were changes for white women. But that was mostly because white women are just large as a group relative to black men and black women. No, I get it. If you're all women, well, it's basically half the population. Exactly. Right? exactly. So you'd, uh, yeah. Exactly. Sure. So maybe another way to say this, and perhaps this is one message to take away, that I think that the way that most people think about discrimination is, is that they think about it as a civil rights or as a social justice issue. So if you're looking through that lens to pick up on the point that Eric was making, it's probably black women that in, in, in which the problem is the most severe. What we're saying is that 
that yes, it, it's obviously a social justice issue. It's obviously a civil rights I- I issue. But what we're saying is that it's also a, a hugely important economic issue. That it's also a, a, an issue that is vitally important in terms of how your economy grows, whether you are fully using all of the talent, all of your capital, if you want to think about it that way. But if you ask the question in that way, then you know sometimes the answer is the same, sometimes the answers are a little bit different. Because and, and here's one case in which the answer is different. That is, it matters how many people you're affecting. After the break, we'll look at where and when these occupational barriers occur. And we'll consider other factors besides gender and race that this model misses. We're talking about what happens when women and people of color are kept out of parts of the workforce. You wind up with mediocre, less productive white men in jobs where you could have more productive women and black men. That comes at a high cost. I'd like to get, go a little bit more slowly and again through this, through these different vehicles, these different ways that discrimination affects people's choices and, and possibilities in, in, in the labor market. And how do you parse out how big a deal, you know, barriers to education, which presumably are very important in, in your eventual future productivity in the labor market versus barriers in the job market itself, where, you know, the boss won't hire you because you're a woman or the boss won't hire you because you're African-American. How do you parse out what's the more important force here? Yeah, so the, the key is that we could follow people over their lifetime. And so let's make a simple example just for, for, for a second to, to kind of illustrate the point. You know, we could see where people sort into jobs, that's one, but we could also see how much they make relative to, to, to white men. And we could do this for every age group, for every birth cohort. So people who were born in the 1960s, they're basically going to enter the job market in the 80s. They're going to then, when they're 20-year-olds, then they're going to be 30 in the 1990s, etc. And so what we do is we use this cohort life cycle type of analysis and show, particularly for women, particularly for white women, that most of the gains relative to otherwise similar white men occur when they enter the labor market. And then that gap stays relatively constant relative to white men throughout their lives. And so what that tells us is whatever is treating the women, it tends to occur as they enter the labor market. And we interpret that as that's going to be due to, you know, differences in schooling at that point. And so you see these gaps for each cohort getting smaller and smaller over time relative to white men. And again, through the lens of our model that says, well, whatever it is, it treats them before they ever enter into the, the labor market. And then once it's there, it stays constant over time. And so that's how we conclude uh, for white women much of the barriers occur in the human capital decision. Whereas for black men and black women, you see a mixture of both. Not only do you get gains for each cohort, but even during their lifetimes, they narrow relative to black men, which is more symptomatic of 
like the Sandra Day O'Connor story that Chang started with, that discrimination abating for a given person with a given set of skills over time. I mean, because the, the education gaps, the educational attainment gaps between white men and white women have pretty much closed entirely. In fact, if, if I remember the stats correctly, white women now have an edge over white men in educational attainment. And the gap between white men and black men has also decreased a bunch. So presumably, thinking into the future, the educational channel will be smaller and whatever residual discrimination we see is going to be more a product of what's happening in the job market itself. Is that a reasonable... Uh, assumption here? Despite that, where white women are more educated on average than white men, women still earn less. And we have not seen much progress between white men and white women in either changing occupational choice or changing wage gaps over the last, you know, 20 some years. And so I have some other work on this topic, which is just showing that, you know, white women, despite going to school more and even more than white men over time, they are both still choosing majors and occupations, which are rewarded less in the labor market. So there still is some potential social norms, even interacting with those educational decisions, not the level of education, but maybe the specialization that occurs with it. Given that you can, can point to a big loss from the misallocation of talent back in the 1960s compared to the present, well, what are, what are we losing still in the present compared to our potential from this misallocation? Have you tried to crunch that? Yeah, it's about if we assumed all black men, black women, white women were the same as white men, so all barriers that we estimated went to zero, we get a burst in GDP of something like 10 to 15%, which is a big number. I mean, you know, 15% increase in GDP is, is, is a relatively, you know, large gain to occur. In a 20 trillion economy? You know? Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, it is pretty big. But just to clarify the exercise that, that we did there is that we only looked at, at blacks versus whites and men versus women. Uh, so what would so the the thought experiment that we entertained there is what would happen if the, the if the distribution of of men versus women across occupations is similar and the same for for whites versus versus black but but you know but there could be important differences within each of these groups that we are not capturing like what like like people that grow up in large cities versus people that grow up in small towns, right? In our data, we're not distinguishing between them. We're just saying this is the group of white men, say. But it could be the case that 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 the access to opportunities to somebody that grows up in Peoria, Illinois, has just worsened by quite a bit relative to somebody that grows up in Chicago or New York or, or somewhere else. And, yeah. and we're not capturing that. But but just to give you a tantalizing example, some of these barriers could be something really stupid, like having to take the SATs. So I was just struck by what happened this year, that basically almost every university dropped the SAT testing requirement. And what you saw, that fact really astounded me. That like in, in among the top American universities, applications doubled 
when wow. you just drop that one single testing requirement, what the media emphasize is is that now admissions rate are like one to one or two percent. But <laughs> but that's coming from the fact that you have so many more people applying just because you dropped the SAT uh, to testing requirement. Yeah, so we don't even know all the barriers that are out there. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in the series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland.